and welcome to The Trumpet, the official podcast of Elephant Room Productions. Happy New Year, everybody. Even though we technically had an episode already this year uh, that was recorded last year, this is the first episode of 2019. Uh, And I have a very exciting uh, way to start it out. I am talking to New York playwright Scott C. Sickles. Uh, We're going to be talking about his play Marianas Trench. Uh, But first, we're going to dive into his quite impressive credit list. So first off, thank you so much, Scott, for taking the time to talk to me today. My pleasure, absolutely. Um, I will say, um, I I know my mother listens to this podcast from time to time, and what's probably going to perk her ears up is the words General Hospital. Yes. Yes, indeed. I do that. That is my that is my 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 day job, as it were, which I never do during the day. No worries. <laughs> are, oh, you still, you are you still with General Hospital? Oh, yeah. 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 As a matter of fact, I uh, uh, just uh, turned in a script today that is going to air in March. Uh, um, yeah, we, we uh, write um, uh, each of the individual. I'm one of the script writers and each of the individual script writers um, writes at least 52 scripts a year. So it's um, it, we're, we're uh, we are quite swamped. So that's a good thing. Well, we are. I mean, generally, I ask about everybody's just kind of general theater history and writing history. I promise I will do that. But um, sure. I just got to <laughs> ask what um, just w- one more General Hospital question. When did you start writing for General Hospital? Uh, General Hospital, I started writing for in um, early 2012, um, uh, I believe it was. Because um, okay. I, I, well, let's see, I know I've been there for, um, it's going on seven years. So yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, and uh, yeah, it'll be seven years in, I think, March. So yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly the longest job I've ever had. Um, I usually manage to get myself fired after two years. So here, this is, this is marvelous. That is impressive. That's, and, um, can you, uh, I'll obviously turn off the microphone afterwards, but, uh, if you can just let me know anything that's coming up, I need to curry some good points with my mother because, (laughs) uh, I'm always looking to impress her. Um, (laughs) yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. No, I'll see if I can drop a few hints later. No worries. Um, well, Backtracking even further back from General Hospital, um, it it's not often that um, I interview people who have such a wide array of writing credits from uh, stage to film to TV. Can you just kind of, um, I guess, start out with what kind of got you into the world of theater and playwriting in the first place? Did you start out as a writer or did you find um, your way through some other avenue of performance? Um, I, I actually always was a writer. Um, I, I, I wrote um, uh, I, I wrote short stories when I was was a, a kid, and which are uh, mercifully all lost to the ravages of time. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was just, I can I, I I vaguely remember a few of them. And I'm like, oh my god. Um, but uh, yeah, um, but I was always a, a writer, and I um, I I wanted to. Um, th- this is so. Um, tragic in its own way i i loved film I w- i've been a film lover since um like you know childhood um and my, my, the first movie my dad ever took me to see was when i was very young was of all things live and let die which of Ooh. course is not only a james bond film but the one with all the voodoo and it's like whoa so that made an impression but uh but yeah i always wanted to be um a screenwriter and um uh, what happened was um, 
I um, started to realize uh, back in the 19, uh, you know, when I was in high school in the um, in the mid 1980s, that um, you know, you, you, <laughs> I was looking in books on how to make movies, and I think the books were even outdated then. So it was just insanely difficult. And then um, you know, you hear how many, you know, the statistics of how many screenplays are written and how many are read and how many are produced, and it just gets infinitely smaller. And um, I also um, really um, enjoyed theater from um, a fairly early age, and I started writing plays instead because those could get done. Um, right. I could actually, right. yeah, that's really that's really the the utterly creatively mercenary reason. Um, if I write a screenplay, no one will ever see it. If right. I write a play, that might actually happen. So, yeah. That's, well, that's I mean, on top of that, you're seeing, um, I mean, particularly with our theater company, with Elephant Room Productions, you see a lot of this. But um, more and more plays are being presented in kind of non-traditional ways. I mean, we have writing or readings or uh, workshops or things of the like. So the, you know, the idea of your story not getting heard is kind of starting to go away. Basically, there's so many different forums for how to present the story, even if it's not uh, being staged. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, and that's, uh, I mean, I've been to readings of, uh, of screenplays, like just sit down concert readings of screenplays. Um, and uh, that can be uh, very effective. Um, I mean, it's, it's, I think for the writer, it's, you know, um, when you write it for a certain medium, you want to see it in, in, in that medium. Um, and, uh, and that's the thing about um, uh, stage that I like is that um, uh, there are so many ways to, to do the play. Uh, like, like you said, you know, with the, um, I mean, this is the, uh, I, this uh, reading was the first time I'd ever um, uh, like let one of my plays go and then get a recording back. And I was like, that was, um, that, that, that took a, 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 like a nice little leap of faith. And I was like, okay, well, here we go. And uh, yeah, but it was, it was a really great uh, listen. And um, uh, so thank you uh, oh, for welcome. doing that. Absolutely. You got it. And, and, um, and it, but, but um, you know, ideally one of these days, you know, I'll want to see it up on its feet, but, um, but it's, it's, it's early days in, right. in, in the history of this play and in the development of this play. So um, one of the things that we talk about a lot in theater is, you know, um, is the is the play overdeveloped? Is it underdeveloped? You know, apparently um, plays are like avocados, and you have to hit it right <laughs> at the right time, or it's just um, you know it, it's either you know un, un, unripened or a mush. And um, so uh, so yeah, we it's it's um, yeah it, it's great to hear the play uh, and and see it up on its you know, feet, um, well, one of these days I'll see this one up on its feet, uh, just like with scripts in hand and, uh, and actors moving about a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, there are a lot of different ways to see that and they're all very helpful. In ways. Nice. Well, I want to also pick your brain on, I mean, this is, um, uh, this is a interest of mine and it's, it comes up, you're seeing a lot more now, but, um, I noticed that one of your kind of features uh, is LGBT issues, and uh, I think that it's one of that's one of the things that really drew me to Mariana's Trench. But 
in general, can you tell me a little bit about your history writing LGBT characters or LGBT situations? Um, sure. Uh, I mean, I'm a gay dude, so, um, uh, and that's, uh, and I was right when I was starting to write, um, I, I, there weren't, um, um, you know, I was really starting to write in the mid 1980s, which, um, um, and the late 1980s. And it felt at the time uh, that a lot of plays about gay people were about um, uh, either AIDS or gay bashing. Yeah. Um, hmm. And, um, uh, and, and um, you know, that you have or they're like the butt of the joke, too. There's, there's also the, this, yeah, there's yeah, that, that then, then, yeah, genre. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, actually, because I think I was thinking about this the other day, where um, the 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 definition of gay play seems to have changed um, because um, <laughs> and now it's just play about like gay that. people. But yeah. oh, good. Yeah. But but um, I just uh, um, I, I have a, another uh, play called Perfecting the Kiss in which uh, the the playwright is. Um, uh, uh, it, it's it's a play with it uh, in a play situation. It's about a rehearsal of a very bad gay play, and the playwright is constantly that. saying, you know, uh, uh, absolutely, um, I'll send it to you. Uh, but <laughs> the playwright is, is, is says a number of times, this is not a gay play, and it's it, it is a play that is about this uh, gay relationship, and it's um, I work very hard to make it one of the most pretentious things you've ever heard. I can't um, wait. And, it's insane, but yeah, but I mean, there there was a time I remember I, I would always say no, I don't write gay plays because you know my characters are keeping their clothes on and they're not like talking about how funny they are and what it's like to be gay. It's not an instructional, you know, a, a theatrical right. instructional video on gay life. Um, and um, and I, I think um, and one of one of my first. Um, um, uh, one of my early 10-minute plays is a, a piece uh, called Beautiful Noises, and it was um, sort of inspired by uh, Terrence McNally's uh, Andre's Mother, where it's, um, there is a, it does involve um, uh, um, the death of a gay man and his lover, as <laughs> it was the term we used at the time. Um, um, <laughs> I guess we still do. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, his, his, his significant other, his partner, and his mother are at his graveside, and um, yeah, he he and his um, late sister are. It takes longer to explain the play than it does to perform. Right, right. Um, but but um, but uh, basically, um, uh, this character. The point is, this character um, died in a car accident. And when I wrote it, um, I think it was like 1993 or something. I wanted him to die in a car accident because um, at, I always say at the time. Um, if you were a gay character, you apparently could survive a hail of bullets um, and, and so long as, you know, you did not, you know, have AIDS or get beaten up by thugs. You, you know, there was no other way gay people were dying in, 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 in stories at the time. And I just wanted to do and the ground was covered. So I wanted to do um, a play where um, you, know, you had a man, a gay man who had passed away it was an accident and his mother um does not like his partner um but not because his partner is gay she's not homophobic she just doesn't like him 
<laughs> and so, um, yeah. so that that was that was my, my way of my, my small way of trying to break ground with a ten minute play. <laughs> so, um, I'm, so and um, it's it's interesting too. You know, just thinking about just the culture of gay characters and gay jokes, and um, it, it's funny. At the time of us recording this, there was actually an interesting story um, about the show Family Guy. I don't know if you heard they did an episode. Yeah. They did an episode earlier this week where Peter confronts Trump. And apparently Trump says something to him like, uh, hey, you're from Family Guy. Most of the people who support me learned how to make fun of you know, black people and Jewish people and gay people from you. And Peter goes, well, in fairness to us, we're phasing out the gay jokes. And they asked yeah. him about it. They asked him about it the next day. And they're like, was that a joke? And the writer said, not really. We're actually kind of starting to phase out the gay jokes, not because we're not allowed to say them anymore, but because it's a different culture than it was 10 years ago when we were writing. And we realized that, you know, certain jokes and certain ways we tell jokes just aren't that funny anymore. And so it seems like they're going to keep, uh, they're, they're going to start phasing out any joke that makes like, you know, that's like the flamboyant, like, Oh, here I am. Okay. Blah, blah, blah. Like the, the yeah, whole, yeah, like, yeah, like yeah, a Pauline yeah. type thing, which I think is a huge, it's insane because you think like most of their fan base is, you know, stereotypically that like dude bro that would laugh at, you know, yeah, look at the queer, but they're mm-hmm. saying like, no, we're making a decision that we are going to change our stance on this. No. Yeah. And it, it's, it's definitely, um, it's definitely a, a, a noble, a noble thing to do. And it's, it's a, probably the right thing to do. I, I do tend to worry sometimes about, um, um, you know, um, there, there's a balance, I think, that has to be struck with with humor, right. um, and, and 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 pushing envelopes. Um, uh, I was, um, um, I mean, I, I'm just remembering back when um, uh, the word faggot was not the other f word. You could actually say it, yeah. and, um, and and um, I, I actually have um, a line in uh, another play where. Um, uh, uh, a, a wife jokingly says to her husband uh, regarding an argument they had over uh, what to name their baby. Um, and there's a whole history. Uh, uh, there's a whole history in their relationship um, where um, she basically, she wants to be like the cool sister to her brother and be the one who's like, Oh, tell me, tell me all this stuff about your gay love life. I've read up on it. And, uh, and her husband is just one of these very comfortable heterosexual guys who, can talk about anything so he doesn't have to work at you know being you know this like really comfortable with her gay brother thing he just is and she is always like sort of working at it but uh, after she has this baby they had this argument about what to name the baby and and finally she was like okay shut up faggot you win and it was you know, <laughs> way, way way back when it was like right. yeah when we first produced it to um uh, 10 years ago, I mean, the line got a laugh. And then we, we did a reading of it about four years ago. And there was discussion over whether or not she could she should call yeah. him this. And, and I was like, well, it's a joke between them. I'm not offended by it. Um, others might be. Um, and, and one of the actors said, well, isn't it sort of castrating for her to respond this and i said i think his masculinity is fairly unassailable so you know i think he's good with it um he gets the joke and a, a friend of mine once and again this was way back in the 90s um she, she, she said i love you scotty but sometimes i just want to say shut up faggot and i thought that was hysterical 
Well, I mean, I think it also it enters into. I think it also enters into, and this is a whole another discussion for another day, which I'd love to invite you mm. to because I am, sure. you know, side plug starting a discussion series soon, um, putting that on the air so I can actually follow through with it. Um, but I mean that that also enters into this phenomenon of um, people people of different groups taking offense for like on behalf of groups that uh, yeah. aren't necessarily yeah. offended <laughs> i that, see that, that a lot that i'm guilty of it too like i'm guilty of it too i, like, oh, yeah, I, it too. Told, I see something yeah yeah i was once told by a guy that um uh because i i love the adventures of priscilla queen of the desert and this uh uh you know i, I i'm an a uh, you know half asian dude uh, and you know, my, my mother's korean and this guy was like on a date with he's like no that movie should have offended you and I'm like, I was like, well, it didn't. Well, well, yeah, it didn't. Yeah, and and and, and my thing just about about uh, words in general um, uh, is, yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I don't like giving so much power to my oppressors, where it's like, okay, well, yes, if you call me this, I am going to be deeply, deeply, deeply offended and wounded because I am choosing to let you. Wound me. I think it goes back to Eleanor Roosevelt about how no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And, right. and it's just, um, yeah, I'm, um, and someone, you know, it's like, well, you know, if, um, you know, if someone is calling you that word while they're like chasing you with a baseball bat through the street, you know, it, you know, it, I'm like, well, that's, yeah, I don't want them to call me anything while they're doing that. Um, I, you know, you know, you know, there's nothing they could say at that point when they're chasing me down the street with a baseball bat to bash my brains in that's going to be friendly. So it's, um, yeah, it, I, I don't like giving power to, to my oppressors is the bottom line for some of this language. But again, you know, it really is, you know, what is the context? Is it hurtful? Um, and, um, and I think that there's a, there's a lot to be explored. And I think there are envelopes to be, uh, to be pushed there. And I think we can, you know, we can, you know, we, it'll be it'll be interesting to see where you know when we've crossed the line and when we haven't. Well, on the subject of oppression, I think that's a better uh, th- that's as best of a segue as anything into the play that we're going to be talking about today, Marianas Trench. Oh, what a coincidence! Uh, yes, it it's is. Yeah. Crazy. Um, in fact, I am. Uh, I I don't even care that it's 18 minutes into the episode because this has been a riveting conversation. But oh, good, um, good, yeah. But, I'm talky yeah. and I get distracted, so here we no, are. No, no, that's it's it's totally fine, and it's uh, I would rather I would rather talky, interesting, than because normally <laughs> I, normally I'm the one dominating the conversation, and I have to remember I'm supposed to be interviewing someone. Um, okay, so, um, so on that note, um, if you could just give us a quick setup of. Uh, the general concept of Marianas Trench, and then just give us a taste of the scene we're about to listen to. Okay, I will do my very best. Um, so Marianas Trench um, is set uh, in an alternate timeline where in the past midterm elections that we actually just had, um, in order to avoid a civil war, the red states and the blue states have separated. The blue states remain the United States of America. The red states are now the new Confederate states of America. And um, I wanted, to, because there was so much contentiousness, um, uh, justifiable contentiousness over this last election, I thought, at, you know, what you know, it would be interesting to explore this universe where what if this did happen? And the way I wanted to do explore it was through the eyes of two boys, two 11-year-old boys. Um, one who is uh, a half Asian boy, um, 
a little gay half Asian boy like I was um, growing up in a, a, a fairly newly liberal um, yet somewhat under siege uh, United States um, and uh, another boy who was a um, uh, the son uh, I, I always describe him as the uh, the son of Chechen Muslim refugees because in the play he himself has no religion. Um, so he is uh, the son of Chechen Muslim re- refugees uh, who escaped Chechnya um, because of uh, anti-gay persecution, which is, uh, once again, in the headlines right now. Um, I moved events. I played with some events in that timeline, in that real life timeline for this story. But yeah, so what happened was um, this boy, Anzor, who is um, uh, uh, this um, kid grow this gay kid with Muslim parents growing up in um, um, Arkansas. Um, he and his family got trapped on the wrong side when the country separated. And it's kind of a political thriller trying to, you know, get him out. Meanwhile, he has this government mandated correspondence with uh, that ends up going to this other boy, Teddy, um, up in Pittsburgh, which is where I'm from. I said a lot of things there. Um, and, uh, they go back and forth and because they're very smart boys, um, they, um, they do their best to figure out how to get around the government censors and the government redactions and to, you know, explore things because the reason this it's, 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 I, I just take this entirely too long to explain concepts. No, um, it's totally but, fun. Uh, it's a, but, it's uh, a very complex concept, so I don't it, get it. it. Yeah. It's, um. But basically, um, the, um, uh, these boys are corresponding over a cor- uh, over a pen pal program mandated by the Confederate government, which is specifically designed to get children to inform on their parents. And they try to work around that. And um, uh, and in the process, uh, these two 11 year old boys who, um, uh, you know, spoiler alert, never meet. Um, but it really is the story about uh, these two 11 year old boys who um um, fall in love over this correspondence, even though they don't know, quite know that's what's happening because they're uh, they're a little too young to understand it, and they're so far away. Nice. And what part of the show we're going to be listening to today? Uh, today we're listening to a scene between his mother. Um, uh, Teddy um, uh, has. Um, uh, what what I've discovered is a fairly typical uh, Korean upbringing and, and East Asian upbringing, where um, uh, he um, he's a very smart kid, but he is not particularly physical, and this is a source of great embarrassment to his parents, who wish he were as physical as he was smart. Um, and in this scene, uh, uh, his mother talks about why this concerns her, but even if um, there weren't, you know, physical dangers in the air. It really is a thing where, um, you know, your child needs to be, you know, it, it, you would rather have a stupid child who is strong than a strong child who, or, or that, than a, um, a weak child who is, is smart. Right. And um, it really is about, um, it, it's a petty, the age of 11, has had it. Um, he is, uh, yeah, he he loves his correspondence he has, but that's not something he does every day. And his everyday life is bearing down on him. And at the age of eleven, he's done. Um, and, and just as uh, as a side note, um, when I was writing this, this is a, an extremely autobiographical scene. 
Um, this, I remember having this conversation with my mother and, um, and, um, uh, yeah, yeah. My mother, who was not an understanding person, actually, uh, it actually got through to her too, but yeah, I, and the funny part of this, uh, is that when I was writing this play and thinking, oh, I'll be able to put all this stuff from my childhood in it, it did not occur to me that it would be painful. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, <laughs> that'll happen. <laughs> so well, uh, anyway, here is the tragic reenactment from my tragic little childhood. All right, let's take a listen. Scene 5. Teddy's bedroom, March 14th. Teddy lies on his bed perfectly still with a heavy towel over his face. Opal calls to him. Teddy, hurry up! We need to get going! Opal starts into the room. You're going to be late for your yellow belt test. Get dressed. What are you doing? I'm tired. Then get up and move around. I'm living. This hits Opal. What do you mean? Exactly what I said. I'm tired of living. Opal gently takes the towel off his face. Why would you say that? Do you know why you're here? Why you exist, I mean? I don't think anyone really knows. I do. I was getting my stuff ready and I realized I am here on this earth to take everybody's shit. Teddy, don't say I swear to God, if you tell me to watch my language. Okay, just this once. Teddy puts the towel back over his face. So, is that why you're tired of living? Because you think you're here to take everybody's shit? Yes. And I don't want the job anymore. Someone else can do it. And what shit are you taking? Seriously? Seriously. Every minute of every day. I'm a chink. I'm a gook. I'm a faggot. I'm a queer and a nerd, and a weirdo, and a freak, and dictionary. Dictionary! Like, that's supposed to be some kind of insult! So that's what's bothering you? That the other kids are calling you names? No, don't do that. Don't make it sound like I'm making a big deal over nothing. You've already told me that it's my fault. When have I ever done that? Teddy looks out from under the towel, incredulous. All the time. You say it to my face all the time. And every time you look at me, you're ashamed of me. I get it. You don't want me for a son. Fine. The feeling is mutual. Teddy puts the towel back over his face. Your father and I just no, Please want... don't say what's best for you. Please stop telling me what I can and cannot say. I'm your mother. Yeah, bang up job you're doing. Opal tears the towel off his face. That's enough! You don't talk to me that way. Now get up, get dressed, we're leaving. I'm not going. Yes, you are. Why? I'll just embarrass you. Not if you do your best. I always do my best. It's never good enough. I'll probably get beat up by some smaller kid, maybe even a girl again. On second thought, maybe I should go. If I humiliate you so badly that you can't show your face there anymore, maybe you'll stop sending my face there. That way people will stop hitting it. If you would just keep your guard See? up. See? It's always my fault. I brought enough shame to the family. I just want to lie here and feel what it's like. Feel what what's like? To not exist anymore. To not breathe. To not be here. You can't kill yourself by putting a towel over your face. You don't think I know that? You don't think your nerd freak son has Googled most effective methods of suicide? Would you like me to recite them to you? Is that what you're telling me? You want to kill yourself? Not yet. Force me to go back to that dojo. So you'd rather die then? Yes! Yes, I would! 
think your father and I would feel about? I don't think you want me to answer that. How do you think your grandfather would feel? He survived North Korea. He'll survive this. It's funny. I tell you I want to die, and you ask how everyone else feels about it except me. Your father and I do love you. We just want you to be strong. This country is getting better, but the world is getting scarier. I know how scary it is. Sometimes it's all I can think about. You know I've been working at the border, volunteering to help the refugees. I know. Why didn't you ever tell me about it? You know I'd be interested. We'd finally have something to talk about. Opal takes a moment, struck by the idea that she and her son have so little in common. I don't tell you because I don't want you to be scared. You know, you know why the country split apart, of course. To avoid a second civil war. And that war was avoided. But because the secession happened so quickly, a lot of people got caught on the wrong side. Not just down south, but here too. People who wanted that war and are still trying to start it. Sometimes they try to cross the border and hurt people here. So terrorists. Yes. And so far they haven't su succeeded. But that hasn't stopped them from trying and trying and trying. If they get through, they could be here in an hour. So yes, your father and I are tough on you. We push and we push. But we do it because we want to keep you safe. And we love that you're smart. Being smart, even as smart as you are, is not enough to survive in this world. You need to know how to defend yourself. It feels like that's all I ever do. I mean physically. I'm 11. If the barbarians crash the gates, that's not enough there's not enough taekwondo in the world to help me. Besides, it's not like there's anything they can do to me that's worse than this. Don't be so sure. I am. It's the one thing I am absolutely certain about. Jerry enters. Come on, let's go. We're going to be late. He's not going. Yes, he is. Otherwise, we have to wait another two months. He's not going back, period. He doesn't like it. We'll find something else. I had to do a lot of things I hated. And it made me better. This is not a discussion. Let's leave him alone. Opal pats Teddy a couple times. It's simultaneously mm. distinct and affectionate. She exits. Jerry looks at Teddy, shakes his head, and exits. On his way out, Jerry asks Opal. What's with the towel? And we're back. Um, so weirdly enough, that very natural and grounded scene, I think pretty much is a really good capture of the, the style of this show, which is very surreal at times. Um, not as surreal as I would have hoped it could be. There's, Ooh. it's a little, um, I, I mean that in a sense that, um, I'm a little concerned that some of the things that happen in this play are just a shy exaggeration of what could potentially <laughs> come in the future. And I hope <laughs> I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it's a very, very compelling piece. It was, it, it's very hard. I think with this kind of thing to not be, I guess, too on the nose. Cause there's a very, there's a very strong risk when you tackle the political climate and, you know, homophobia and, you know, xenophobia, things like that. There's a very, there are very... about 17 TV movies in this play, actually. So, exactly. Yeah, it, and it, yeah. Like you, you feel like is there's a risk that you could go down that road. And I don't think you did. 
Um, what, what most really stood out to me was not even the content of the play. It was the just the way it clipped along. I mean, we all kind of this was the last play that we read of 2018. Um, and we fortunately were able to get a cast. We had some unfortunate schedule conflicts come up and we were able to the um, uh, the two southern United States parents uh, were actors that. I was able to get in two of my friends uh, that night, and they. I'm so glad we did because they knocked it out of the park. But um, yeah. uh, everybody did. I don't mean to single anyone out. But we we all kind of, you know, Lauren made us aware going in, you know, hey, just a heads up, this is, it's 127 pages. It's probably going to be, you know, a two-and-a-half-hour read. You know, just, mm. but it didn't feel like, it didn't feel like a play that dragged. We've, I mean, I've read plays both in and out of this program where, you know, we've given feedback on the length of the piece. And this one, I like, I can't think of what is not necessary for this story to flow. Um, that being said, it's also maybe, I don't know if you want to talk about this now or save it sure. uh, for a little later, but um, it is part one of what you told me earlier is a three part saga. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It is. I, um, uh, I um, had a lot on my mind, and what I uh, and I've actually written the first draft of of, uh, of all three plays now. Um, uh, the second play, uh, the the current working title is Pangea, uh, and it um, Ooh, we we like uh, yeah very much me, so. me, me, me too. It may change, uh, but, uh, but I, I really like it, and um, I actually um, sort of came up with the concepts. And the titles for these plays um, very early on, and then um, and I, I worked from outlines. I usually am a fairly extensive outliner, and Marianna's Trench was outlined within an inch of its life before I wrote it. And then I started writing um, the second play, Pangea, and I realized this isn't an outline. This is just notes. <laughs> I had to like stop, um, but uh, and just like re like figure, okay, what the hell are they actually doing? But in um, uh, in Pangea, we meet up with uh, um, Teddy and Anzor as adults, but uh, at this point, um, because, in large part because of their childhood, their um, uh, Teddy was uh, uh, T- Teddy was that character's middle name. Now he's going by his first name, and um, and uh, Anzor, after he um, uh, again spoilered after he escapes, um, you know he goes into foster care and takes on a whole new name. And what's fun is that um, you know there's a lot of talk in the first play about the ocean. Teddy is a, an ocean nut. He loves marine biology, and um, Anzor um, is a space geek. And they grow up, we find, to be a marine biologist and an astronaut. Oh wow! And um, yeah, yeah. And uh, and the second play takes place um, uh, on um, on the first three days of 2046. Uh, at Palmer Station in Antarctica, uh, where uh, Teddy works, uh, he, he goes by his first name Lincoln. Anzor goes—he's uh, anglicized his name um, because um, uh, his heritage um, kind of ruined his life when he was 11, um, and so he's anglicized his name, and he's just Andy now. So um, they meet up, um, uh, um, and the play begins on New Year's Day after they have had a one-night stand, um, uh, not necessarily knowing who the other one is. Um, and, uh, and, and they um, sort of make this discovery, and then um, 
uh, it, it's a bit of a talky play, and it's kind of like um, sort of um, a gay before sunrise in the Antarctic. Uh, but um, but they, um, yeah, it's it's it, it kind of turned out that way, which was surprising. But um, it's like, okay, you know what? I'm I'm you know I'm reading it aloud to myself, and I'm not bored yet. Um, we'll see, because um, that that's a good test you know, when you read the play aloud to yourself, and you're like, Jesus, you know, how much longer do I have? And um, but yeah, so um, but it really is about how their relationship, this romantic relationship between them, begins as adults when they're like 38. Um, and, um, one of them has, you know, one of them has already been to Mars and back and, um, I'm going to go on a limb and guess that it's Andy. Yes. Yes, definitely. Yes. Um, I don't know. You, you pulled the rug out from under me before, so. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. I'm I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah. But yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah. So, um, but it really is about this, um, sort of, um, uh, these two people who, um, you know, um, are meeting um, 26 years after the last time they heard from each other, um, realizing that neither one of them ever got over it. And what's going on in this, it's like, what's going on in this play politically is it's all about, you know, I mean, it's, it's all about the ice melting and climate change and the sea level rising and, 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 um, and, and, you know, the changes in biodiversity, there's an entire um, scene that takes place. Um, it's kind of a date scene when they are in a submersible um, under in the water outside of a, uh, outside of a, a Palmer station in the Southern ocean when they're visiting a shipwreck. And, uh, and it's, um, you know, um, there are a lot of cool scenarios, I think. And, uh, and that's um, where that uh, play goes is, is really the beginning of their relationship. And the third play in the series is uh, called the known universe um, uh, from a, um, a, a sentiment that one has where the, the planet earth is the only planet in the known universe that can support human life. And um, in Pangea, they are very concerned about, you know, the ice caps melting, what's going to happen? You know, um, will there, you know, you know, is there, you know, um, how, how long will, will Earth be able to sit, sit that sustain human life? And uh, the, third, the third play takes place on the last day that it's able to, um, about um, another, like, between 15 and 20 years later. I didn't get too specific. When, um, and this is, this is a bleak scenario, and it's definitely much more hard sci-fi, where... Um, and uh, what's happening is that there is a global evacuation of the planet. Um, you can't get everybody off. You can get a tiny, uh, as um, I think uh, there's a line in the second play, um, we can, we'll be able to save a tiny percentage of fairly useless people. And uh, they, they um, uh, Anzor, uh, Andy, uh, well, actually they're going by their childhood names again. Um, that was a discovery I made while writing and I had to do a whole lot of like global search and replace. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Anzor is, is up in this space station, um, this orbital space station, where people are supposed to be launched from the planet to the space station, where they are then sort of put onto other ships going to the Mars or to the moon or to orbital like colonies or to deep space. You know, it's like scattering humanity because the Earth can no longer sustain life. And what has just happened as the play begins is that um, the um, ship that was supposed to bring up Anzor's family, which is Teddy and uh, their two boys and uh, the mother of their two boys and her wife, um, 
that that launch has been grounded, there won't be any more. The, um, it's over. Right. And they um, and what the, that the, the last play is, and it takes place kind of in real time, kind of in real time, mostly real time, is basically this last conversation between these two people who we've been watching since they were 11 and uh, their family and how they're um, you know, basically uh, what's happening on the earth is that it is um, instead of heating up, it's freezing over. Um, and there's like a new ice age beginning. And this is not necessarily scientifically sound. I'm not worried about it being scientifically sound in, the, in third play. I, I <laughs> kind of need to rewrite the second play because a new climate report came out where I'm like, oh, my God, it's actually getting worse faster than it was in my yeah. play. But, uh, yeah, I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> this is actually Which, how depressing scenario. is that, by the way? Oh, my God. I mean, it's depressing Sidebar. on two levels. Like, it's like, oh, humanity and fuck a rewrite. So I'm like, oh no, but um, so yeah, there it is. But um, but yeah, so um, so this like it's uh, it, it's uh, when I finally finished writing it, I was like, well, this is surprisingly not bleak, um, even though this the scenario is because it really is about um, the last hour and a half of sustainable life on Earth, um, and how this other person who is in orbit is trying to stay in contact with his family until the last possible moment. Um, and it really is a um, a less political. I mean, the the politics is kind of over. It's like you know this you know this is a worst case scenario. The Earth can no longer sustain life because you know people didn't take care of it. But when that happens, when that global catastrophe happens, um, how do you want to spend the last remaining hour and a half of your life and the hour last remaining hour and a half of of human life on Earth? And uh, and it was in a small way, I think. Um, inspired by one of my one of my very 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 favorite films which is a a 1998 1999 movie depending on which country you're talking about a movie called last night which is about um uh, it's a canadian film about the last six hours before the world ends at midnight and uh it's a fantastic movie and it's like early sandra oh so i mean how great (laughs) is that but um but yeah so um so that's uh, so basically we take this, uh, uh, you know, in these three plays, I've taken this love story that starts with these two boys when they're 11, revisits them at 38, and then um, and, and then we see them at the literal end of the world. And um, yeah, so so here's to hoping here. Here's hoping that um, once you get the other two plays, yeah, they don't yeah. suck. So well, I mean, um, what's interesting, though, is you know, and we even talked about this at the reading that even without two and three, I, I don't feel I'm at a loss for just reading one. I definitely want to read two and three, but if I had, if I'd been in a theater and watched one, uh, I wouldn't have left the theater back to the future part two style and thinking, what the hell was that? I don't, another cliffhanger. Like it's you, you do a really good job of setting up a pretty much complete story that has room to expand. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I want, I want them, I want them all to be um, um, sort of like, I want them all to be sufficient standalone pieces um, because, um, and I don't want, want people to get too lost, which is, um, um, but I also, that, that's the tricky part, especially for this middle one where you're just like, well, how much information do I need to reiterate? Um, that's going to sound like really naked, heavy exposition. Um, right. about these two people and, and really is, um, and, and one of the questions I'm going to have is, is, is um, you know, 
when these two two people, when um, you know, um, Teddy and Anza are at age thirty eight, are like realizing who you know, each realizing who the other one is. You know, how is um, is the summary? You know, is the basic summary that I have to include of this first play going to seem forced, ham-fisted, or implausible? And um, so that's um, you know, I can't wait to find out. But um, yeah, so so uh, I'm I'm trying to do that. And the other thing uh, that that um, I wanted to talk about is, uh, and and someone mentioned it, I think, in the feedback is, yeah, it, it's actually um, did write it with the intention of it ideally being. Um, producible with the same eight actors. Right. Um, and in the second play, I realized, um, uh, oh, well, you know what? Um, um, don't need, don't need the kid. Don't need the boy. So they get a break. Uh, but um, but uh, the say it's uh, the same. Um, ideally, in the you know massive massive Angels in America level production, um, you know we could have these this the same cast of eight, and you know, and Teddy and Anzo are you know by one pair of actors uh, in the first play, um, old, slightly somewhat old, well, the, the um, actors in their late 30s in the second right. play and actors in their late 50s. In the, the, the ensemble is still built up of the people from, the the ensemble from the other plays. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. That's a really yeah. neat concept, actually. And, uh, and I'm, I, I was hoping it was, I'm hoping it, 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 it it's workable. And, and what's interesting is that the, the boys who play Teddy and Anzar in the first play uh, play their kids in the last play. And, right. um, I, you know, in this ideal imaginary epic production. Um, and I, um, and it was writing, um, the boys in the last play was very interesting for me because, um, as you will see maybe sometime next year, um, that uh, um, Teddy and Enzo are written um, almost too smart. Uh, and, and, and I did that, pick up that, I, that was a comment I had at first, but then it actually dwindled as I was reading it there because they there was a point where I was like, you know, they, this is very advanced for his age. Um, but I think you do a really good job of kind of spelling out that he is a little too smart for his own good and that he, um, Teddy in particular, uh, yeah, yeah. is definitely yeah, yeah. a, one yeah, of my favorite on mo- moments is, uh, there, there's a bit where he's, um, and he's actually lying to his parents cause he's writing a letter to Anzar. Uh, um, but, but what he, he tells them that he's, um, doing a, a, an extra credit report for school. So that's, um, all the A, so because the class is graded on a curve, um, all the, if he gets extra credit, all the A pluses become A's and the A's become A minuses and the, the, the A minuses become B pluses. And he's just basically, he hates his classmates so much. That he's, <laughs> he, he has this fantasy of, of throwing the curve so that even the kids get, getting A's are now getting A minuses. A minuses. Um, yeah. So like you vindictive little prick you, but, uh, well, but I mean, that, that that, there are a lot of nice quips like that in the, in the show. Yeah. Yeah, there were a couple of things hey. that like really stood out, and um, you you probably heard in the recording that there's some moments that we just laughed at, like in the background. Yeah, just yeah, I appreciated that. That was nice. Yeah, it's really good. It's I mean, I think particularly some of the back and forth between Teddy and Rico, um, uh-huh. the, his grandfather, are like, holy shit, did he just say that? All right, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh, sadly all of that is fictional. Um, I, I, I never had yeah. that grandfather, but uh, but yeah, but it's uh, but uh, 
Um, yeah, and I, I do want to be very clear that uh, uh, Teddy is not the nerd I was. Teddy is the nerd I wish I had been. Um, uh, I, I, I wish I had been as smart as Teddy. But one of the things, uh, I was actually worried about that, and then I, I realized, uh, looping back around to the day job, um, at General Hospital, uh, one of the characters I write is a precocious little boy named uh, Spencer Cassidine, who I'm like, uh, and if you want precocious and too smart for his own good and and um, and one of those kids who is like, nobody talks like that at that age. No, he talks like that at that age. Yeah. <laughs> like, OK, so um, and it's not it's not just uh, it's not just the character. It, it's it, it, the character is um, is sort of a, um, a somewhat magnified version of, of uh, the actor and, and uh, Nicholas Bechtel, who was ad- adorable. And and, uh, and it's so much fun to write that. But that was like it was the <coughs> excuse me, one of the times where I kind of like used my um, use General Hospital as a fallback for, you know, I can write this in this stage play. Yeah. And uh, and the point I was making is that um, uh, Teddy and Anzor have a very difficult lives at that age. And the characters that those uh, of the boys in the third play um, clearly have had much easier lives, despite the fact that the world is ending around them. They've been very sheltered from it. They not, they're not even told that right. they're about to die. Um, and... Um, and one of the things that happens in, in the play, well, actually, two of the things that happen in the play is that each of the boys tells a different parent that they know what's going on, but they're not telling their brother because they they don't want their brother to be scared. Right. So that's a nice mm-hmm. bit of schmaltz that I, I put in there. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's um, yeah. And, but but what was interesting is that the characters, because their lives up to that point had been a lot easier, just sort of in the backstory, uh, they they sound a lot younger. And, and not necessarily—they're um, not as Dawson, Dawson's creaky smart as um, as Teddy and Anzar, but uh, they sound a lot younger. And it was just sort of an interesting thing that happened, where um, you know I'm sort of uh, writing them to sound, even though they're about the same ages as the other characters, more like they're closer to you know seven and eight than yeah ten than eleven, yeah. So that'll one, be interesting. One thing I have to ask before I go on to um, the kind of uh, logistics of shaping the play, um, there is one thing that stuck out to me that we, some of us were a little compu- confused about. None of the actors sure. reading this piece were Asian-American. Um, is the old Asian man with a hat a stereotype that I should be familiar with? Oh, old men, old men. Um, yeah. Well, um, Asians, um, the stereotype, Asians are bad drivers. Old men with hats are bad drivers. Gotcha. That's actually so it's, a thing. It's a, so it's a combination so it's a of the two. Double whammy. He is an old Asian man wearing a hat. And, uh, and that's, uh, now I get it. yeah. So, so that's the thing. Uh, the only thing that could make the situation worse if they, is if they were in Ohio. So, yeah. I will say I appreciated that moment very much because, oh, good. uh, I frequently, I love uh, the trilby style hat, um, the kind of fedora with the curled up back. And anyone listening yeah. to this is rolling their eyes right now. But um, I, uh, I've always loved it, um, and I've lost it in a move recently. And my mother got no. another one for Christmas, and I love it. Oh, good. Um, I would wear it to. I, I used to work at a Starbucks that was um, just outside of. Uh, King of Prussia, and in their health code, you did not have to wear a hat to work, but because we were allowed to wear trilbies, I made it a point to wear a trilby. Um, <laughs> Excellent. And, 
And calling out, um, calling out a former co-worker, Alexander Capalupo, if you are listening, it is a trilby, not a fedora. There is a difference. Um, so moving on, nah. but, yeah. moving on, um, uh, let me just ask you about the actual writing process of the piece and the development process, specifically uh, sure. with our feedback. Has this play, has the first part of the, this trilogy, the Mariana Strange part, has it shaped at all? based on our feedback or has it affected two and three based on the feedback of the um, first one? I have, I have just gotten the feedback and I, uh, I, I was just listening to it uh, in the last um, few days. So it's given me a lot of stuff to, uh, to, to, to chew on. And there, there are some things where I'm just like, um, there's a, there, there are a few confirmation biases where I'm just like, Oh yes, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad that was, that was clear. But yeah, no, it is definitely, um, um, going to be shaping the the um, you know the the next uh, uh, draft when I get to it. Right now, I'm actually um, uh, focusing on um, uh, play um, uh, Pangea and the Known Universe um, and seeing how that is. But uh, but yeah, I um, but definitely um, that there are um, aspects of uh, the the feedback that I'm I'm uh, taking into consideration. Some of it. Um, uh, uh, one of the things was the um, uh, clarifying the question of upbringing uh, for Rico, the, the grandfather, because he's um, um, he, he's you know he, he left North Korea for Italy when he was very young, um, and so and someone said you know wouldn't he have um, you know wouldn't his upbringing be more Italian? And I'm thinking um, there is um, you know uh, there, there there's there is a a little, a nice little well to explore there because um, uh, um, going from an East Asian background to um, what is most likely a Catholic background, um, you're going from um, a shame-based culture to a guilt-based culture, <laughs> which are two very different things. I was and, raised um, Italian Catholic. I can relate. Well, there you go. And it's just, uh, yeah. Um, and, um, and, and uh, there, there's um, uh, uh, it, it, it's, um, and I think that there's a sort of a combination where there is a there there is a strictness. There's a strictness to both, um, and the difference is, um, and I think uh, just looking back on it, this is sort of uh, me connecting the dots right now. Um, there's this sort of um, very East Asian upbringing that Rico used with. Uh, with 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 Jerry that Jerry is using with Teddy that's very um, you know um, you know you know you let those kids beat you up and therefore you have brought shame to your mother your and your father yeah as opposed to you know like are you okay God forbid he ask are you okay I will but, say the uh, thing that but, was most poignant to me that really stood mm -hmm. out was that moment of. Um, because I, I thought the scene was going to go a little differently and I'm glad it didn't but the that speech that Rico gives him about, I raised your father to be this way because this is how he was raised and he, that's why he's raising you. And then it shifts to, but you're not your father. You don't need to be raised mm. the way I raised him. You need to be, you know, the, you have different needs and wants that they need to be understanding. So that, that really, that, uh, that really hit me. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I, I think it was, it really is um, sort of an, uh, like an idealized version in my head, certainly where, um, it, it's, um, 
you know, when you, you know, uh, and, and it really is, I, I think what one of your, your um, actors had said uh, that uh, um, it reminded, maybe it was you, uh, uh, of their father who um, was very strict with them, but is just a pussycat with the grandkids. Uh, because, and I think that, that just, I think that just sort of is the natural order of things. Uh, Um, um, especially it's like, you see the mistakes you made with their, with your children, or you see, you know, the, the choices you made with your children who, that were not mistakes with your children, but they are making, but they're doing the same thing. And and that's what's happening here. And they're finding their own way too. They're finding, yeah, they're finding their own way. Uh, part of the writing process of this and some of the choices um, is that um, I mean, I, I, I have um, um, I, I have a Korean mother and I had a German father, so um, so that was a mood swing and a half, and um, <laughs> and, and it was yeah, uh, and um, so um, yeah, but I had um, I had this concept of telling this gay love story over these three plays using um, these six male actors. To, to play these characters at different ages. So, um, of course, I, I was then, ma- you know, I had to make, um, you know, um, the, the Asian parent was now, the, was the male parent uh, right. instead of the female parent, instead of, instead of the mom. So that was a, sort of a, a flip on, uh, on, on actual life and, um, and, and, you know, trying to, because I've not heard this with, uh, with Asian actors either. Um, uh, I, I pretty much had a Caucasian cast when we did the one table read that we did. Um, and, uh, so I, I'm, one of these days I, I, I will have that luxury. And, uh, I, I really want to ask, you know, is, you know, not having been raised with an Asian father, is there a difference, you know, is there a strong difference between Asian fathers and Asian mothers in this regard? Um, uh, I mean, honestly, I speaking. saw a lot of, I saw a lot of my parents, uh, in this, in both, both the good and the bad. And they were, they were very, uh, they were very loving, still are very loving, but very firm and very strict. They were both Italian. So there was, um, uh, but I mean, they, I think it's definitely universal and I think it definitely transcends that. I don't think there's a cultural barrier there in order. Oh, good. Um, well, Unfortunately, I think we do need to wind this down. This conversation went a little longer than I wanted uh, than I was I, expecting. I but this was in a very no, no. I mean, it's it's a good kind of long. It's the it's actually good. in the same regard as Mariana's Trench. It is it it is a worthwhile length versus length for the sake of it. Um, but before we wrap up, I do always like to um, end on a nice kind of fun round down theater question. Uh, so for you, because most of your work revolves around LGBT issues, uh, my question is if you could take any play with a heterosexual couple as the leads and transpose it into a gay story, what play would you pick? Oh, dear God. Um, uh, can I pick a movie? You can do a movie, yeah. Or does it have to be a play? Um, <laughs> no, you know, I, yeah. Okay, because... Uh, uh, um, yeah, uh, the the movie I would pick is actually one from the 1930s. Uh, it's called um, "I Know Where I'm Going." Uh, it's uh, directed by um, uh, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, and it's uh, this great. Uh, it follows sort of a romantic comic formula, even though it's not quite a romantic comedy. But uh, it's about this um, young woman who is off to. Um, uh, Scotland to marry this um, very, very wealthy man who we never see because she never is able to get quite to the island. And she falls in love with this um, 
soldier on leave played by an actor named Roger Livesey, who no one knows anymore, who is just absolutely just the most glorious thing ever. But there's a, a beautiful story there um, about uh, you know, their, um, you know, two people and what's expected of them and what they expect of themselves uh, sort of falling for each other in, in a way that defies all of those expectations. Um, and, uh, and it's just one of my favorite love stories. And I, that's the one where I, um, you know, if I, if I had the rights uh, to, um, to, to do an adaptation, I would, I would turn it into a gay love story. Uh, funny, I was right before we had this. I don't know how this this hit my head. Uh, it might be because my roommate is about to direct uh, Romeo and Juliet, but uh, yeah. I would love to see. I, I've always thought of uh, it would be neat to do a gay twist on Romeo and Juliet. Um, and the only the only uh, thing that's preventing that in my head is I can't find a way to work in the the marriage plot with Juliet's family in the later half. Um, but I yeah, would. I- but in that respect, I would love to do a production of Romeo and Juliet where uh, Romeo is a woman, where uh, it becomes a lesbian story. Uh, oh, that would be, so yeah. I, because that way you still have the, no, you are going to marry this man because it is what, you know, our family and our culture dictates, and it, it takes on that meaning, too. Yeah, no, no, I like that. I like that idea a lot. Yeah, I actually did a take on um, a gay take on Romeo and Juliet, sort of, in a very, 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 very loose way in um, in my play uh, Composure, which is actually set around um, a production of uh, Romeo and Juliet. Um, and uh, it's about a director who comes back to his hometown college alma mater to uh, direct a production of Romeo and Juliet that is being produced as um um, to commemorate the one-year anniversary of an on-campus unrequited love shooting. Um, and there is some controversy over whether or not this is um, um, appropriate or in horrible, horrible taste, um, which is interesting because I had people, uh, when I was doing this, uh, simultaneously say, I don't, uh, I don't know what the big deal is to, you can't do that. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I, you um, have not mentioned so, a single play today that I would not read or, uh, oh. <laughs> like, absorb. <laughs> <laughs> I just oh, want you to know that. Excellent. So they um, are all available on the new play exchange. But uh, ooh, I but, will yeah, look um, at that. Yeah. But uh, and I can send them. But yeah. And before um, we before we drift off, I just have one more uh, question. Um, can you just let me know what is going on with Carl and Sonny? Because Ryan's murder list has me a little concerned, and I just need to. I need some closure that everything's going to be okay. Uh, with, with Carly and Sonny? Yeah. Um, Going back to General Hospital. Just trying to sneak I that in there. I don't think it's... I, I, um, I, I don't... Uh, um, that, you know, th- there, there will be jeopardy because oh. it is the show that it is. There will, there, there will be jeopardy. Um, and I think you, you will hold your breath for a while, and, but, but eventually you, you will probably be breathing a little easier. That that's the best way I can describe what's what's going to happen because there is some there's some really exciting stuff that's going to happen um, and I love how the Ryan story is sort of uh, like touching all sorts of other stories so yeah yeah but um, okay did you hear that mom everything's yeah everything's it's not going to happen the way you think it will oh lord well, on that note tune in thank tomorrow. You. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Scott, for uh, ringing in the new year with uh, 
our first record of 2019. Uh, this was an absolute pleasure. Um, and to any other aspiring playwrights out there, as always, if you have a play, no matter what form it's in, and you want some feedback on it, please, please, please send it to erpsubmissions at gmail.com. Remember, every story deserves to be heard, so join our Elephant Herd today. This is Robert Jean Pileccio. Until next time, signing off. Um, but in the, in this play, because I'm making it this essentially this um, gay love story um, that uh, over, I hear whistling. It's just the police sirens in the background. That's the oh, yeah, the okay. joys of recording in West Philly. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. I'm <laughs> Go like, on. You know, here I am in New York, and I'm not recognizing police sirens. How funny That's is that? Okay. But um, but yeah, fortunately, but, um, it's on so, my end of the audio, so I can just oh, trim that out oh, without losing yours. Excellent. No worries. No worries. Snip, snip. But, um...